Skycast episode 40, a podcast dedicated to all things The 100. I'm Brittany Perlman. And I'm Sarah McCabe. And today we'll be discussing season 6, episode 11, Ashes to Ashes. Yes, we will. <laughs> that wasn't a question. That was a statement. We're I, I was agreeing. We're yes. talking. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about it? Uh, I really liked it. I liked um, it too. There were some really great emotional moments in it. I hope you really nailed down some of the more like directorial things because this is what Bob directed his first directorial debut if you will um well I actually have a thought about that um up at the top here which is that I felt like Bob's directorial style actually blends pretty damn seamlessly with the regular crew of directors that they have and I want to give him props and kudos for doing such a seamless job you know Mm -hmm. I didn't feel as jarring as like when say Henry and Cusick got behind the camera and I was like whoa what are all these like (laughs) like the visual language stayed very much in the same vocabulary as what we usually see on the hundred and so because of that I don't feel like there was a ton of like specific things I could call out there are a few things or a few instances where I do mention some stuff but for the most part, it was a pretty seamless transition, Great. I would say. And I, I think mean, in, that's, in that self, in and of itself, that's a feat. I didn't notice any weird fade outs or anything. So um, that's about as far as I ever noticed there was no directorial weird, stuff. There was no weird fade outs. There were no weird, like, you know, overlaps. There was no weird, like, camera angles. You know, it was all, again, pretty much in the language of the show. Mm-hmm. So that was good. And yeah. yeah, it was it was a great episode. Great, I thought it great was writing. A really great episode. Um, really did a good job setting up the last two episodes of the season. Yeah, and like a lot of really good character stuff in this episode mm-hmm. too. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Before we get into the <laughs> recap, just want to remind you guys to take this moment, go rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps other fans of the hundred find us. So please go and do that for us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. Britt and I just woke up from nap, so we're like, you know, we're getting ready. We're, you know, rearing to go. <laughs> you didn't but... have to tell <laughs> yes, them Yes, I did, because I want to be clear. We're still waking up. We're and tired. In a second here, I will be fully awake. <laughs> I also want to clarify, this is like the sixth day in a row that, that we've, we've podcasted. been podcasting yeah. straight to try and get these episodes out in a timely fashion. <laughs> And it's obviously taking its toll. (laughs) No, this is going to be an excellent episode. I'm ready to start the recaps. Let's jump in. Do it. And we'll just get started. Let's do it. So Maddie wakes up in the Prime Lab and tricks Jackson into releasing her from the straps holding her down. As soon as he does, she tries to attack him and Jackson is forced to put her under again. In Maddie's mind, she's playing chess with Shade Hedda, who wants to show her how to rule this new world just like he did the last. Um, so first off, I am surprised that Jackson and the rest of them don't seem to be, like, monitored by anyone. You mean, like, guarded? That Well, my voice just went really high there. Anyone? <laughs> Sounds like a 13-year-old boy. Yes, I did. Um, yeah, like, like, there's no guards around. Jackson seems like he's kind of on his own, which, you know, you don't really leave prisoners on their own in a lab full of equipment, you yeah. know? And actually, I was even more surprised, now that you mentioned that, that Abby was nowhere to be seen like I know he calls for her like Abby Abby like supposedly she's like in the next room yeah but like what's she doing in the reliquary room you know and like did they not want to pay her for this episode why isn't she in this episode 
I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's about paying, but I think it was just like that she's not needed this episode. I, so. I guess not. Um, but Maddie does call him Dr. Jackson, and it was very sweet. A ruse, <laughs> but very sweet. Yes, yes. She <laughs> definitely plays to her strengths uh-huh. and plays into misconceptions about her being a 12-year-old. Girls are always uh, underestimated. They are. They are, <laughs> especially when they have a demon possessing them. Um, speaking of which, I am. I was very glad to see still a tiny piece of Maddie fighting inside her mind against Shade Hedda and working against his worst impulses. Like he says to her, you know, why didn't you let me go for the throat and we could have ended him and now he's a liability. And we can see that she, even though she's like pretty much relinquished almost all of control, she's still checking it back just a little bit. And that gives me hope and I was excited to see that. Yeah, well, what was interesting was he said, why didn't you let me go for the throat? Like he really was like in control of her mm-hmm. um and she was fighting that control slightly yeah um so we'll kind of i guess we can just jump in here does shade hedda have some sort of goal here like if he gets enough control over her mentally can he like maybe take over her body too like i i don't really know what his purpose is i don't know what his, like i feel like we need to split this up into two questions actually because i don't know what his purpose is on the Maddie level, like, what is his ultimate goal possessing her? Like, is he trying to take over her entire body or, you know, yeah, you were saying? And then bigger picture, what is his motive in general? Like, why do you want her to take over this new world, like, and rule it like you did the last and kill anyone who stands in your way and get the revenge that you deserve? Like, he goes on this, like, entire monologue, which you can see is, like, clearly feeding Maddie's worst impulses, but... My question, again, is why? Yeah, like, dude, you're dead. Like, go take a nap. Honestly, (laughs) what is wrong with you? I mean, not only are you dead, you're ugly. You are creepy as fuck. He is a creepy looking mofo. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Oh, my God. He, like, took that hood off, and I was like, put it back up. Put it back up. (laughs) Abort, abort. Abort, retreat, retreat. (laughs) He's just, first of all, no white person should ever be wearing dreads. He didn't have dreads. Or cornrows. Yeah, yeah. Period. Like, that's a blanket statement I feel comfortable <laughs> saying. If you're white, stay away from the cornrows. And, like, don't put those little pieces of like metal. Like little rings. Yeah, yeah. in there either. That's not a good look <laughs> for you. <laughs> but speaking of design, I did have to call out how amazing this chess set is. It is so cool. It was, an, it was a beautiful prop. Um, I wish I could have gotten a better look at it because it was really dark in that you know mind space Mm -hmm. but again just like we don't shout out we don't give enough props (laughs) i made a pun (laughs) um to the designers and how will people tell us apart (laughs) yes i'm so sorry you guys um to the set designers and this just felt like a really great opportunity to say they are amazing yeah i mean they do such a great job and the props department is really working overtime here with this chess piece i was like oh my god i mean especially you know props and sets i mean every show you know when it comes to a new season they'll have new stuff but this show especially like redesigns its whole look almost every Every year year. in different ways and so they you know put a lot of effort into you know making each season feel so distinct and and they you know go they they make it they do that in a way that doesn't feel 
um and like unless you get these specific pieces like this chess set is a good example this is like very lavish and elaborate but like for the most part like their if their job is done well you don't notice yeah um so it's a it's a great job they're doing um and just one last thing i had to say about shade hedda he makes a big show about you know removing his hood and showing us his nice little cornrows um and this is the first time we've really seen him without his hood and i guess my question is is that supposed to be important in any way like it felt like they made such a moment out of it i think it was supposed to signify that he is like fully showing himself to maddie in order to like get her to fully relinquish control okay like he's like this is all of myself now give me all of yourself i just want to know what happened to his eye can we get some backstory oh, yeah. <laughs> also i looked up how old this kid is and he's 24 is he that young yeah because I think Richard Harmon said that he um, has been friends with this guy for a while. It's a, He's a Canadian actor yeah. um, working in Vancouver. Um, 24, wow. Yeah. But I think that makes sense. Like, for the... No, for the age, for, for sure. For, yeah. I, I was, like, a little worried they were going to cast someone because I couldn't really tell how old he was with yeah. the scars and the hood and everything. And I was like, oh, please don't be, like, some 40-year-old dude because then the, that takes on, like, a weird, creepier connotation. But I think keeping it young enough and keeping it in a place where you could see that he would be a rebellious sort of like that allegory to teenage rebellion Mm -hmm. not only makes sense for his character but also why maddie relates to it so much so just all i wanted to say great casting i mean and it makes sense in the ways that you know polis operated which is putting chips in children and then like they all die young so yes so all to say, great casting. <sighs> All to say, didn't miss that plot line. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I, sorry, I know we keep saying we're going to move on, but I was glad to see it, like, a little bit more fleshed out this episode, but by barely. I was going to say, was it, though? I don't know. I was trying to give, be nice. I, I think they have now moved into, like, phase two of this plot line, which is, like, climax and resolution. Yeah. Whereas, like, I'm still on the... But wait, what? Why? I guess that's a good point. I never really got the why. Yeah. And don't understand motive. Okay. (laughs) You've talked me out of it. Peace, Shade Hedda. Until next time. (laughs) Clark wakes up from a nightmare and Bellamy comforts her. But now that he's saved her, they need to figure out how to save everyone else. Particularly hard now that there's no Josephine left in the mind drive. Clark wants to pretend to be Josephine to trick Russell, but Bellamy isn't having it. He can't both worry, or he can't bother worrying about anyone else but his own people right now. So first I have to say, Bellamy is coming in very touchy in this Yeah, He like slides his hand up her thigh, he's like rests it there, he's like holding her cheek. He brings her water, which is so soft and sweet. He's very sweet. And he says, he says, I'm still here, which is like, oh, my God. I mean, what he's, is, he's what been watching over her while she sleeps. You two are freaking ridiculous. Remember when they were making the list in season three and the camera like shot over to him sleeping on the couch and like Clark was watching him? Yeah, this is different, this is, though. This is different, but also like a nice reversal. This is different because I've never seen Clark look at Bellamy the way that she is looking at him here in this scene. I mean, I would agree with you. <laughs> I know, I, I just, like, it. the, the like, level of hard eyes and the softness between them, it's, like, it really does feel like something has changed, especially from Clark's side, kind of seeing, like, how far he went to save her. Yeah. Um, 
uh, girls in love. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's really no other explanation. It's <laughs> really no explanation. Um, you want to know what the best part of this scene was? What? It was Bellamy's dad sweater. Oh, my God. Bellamy is rocking that cardigan. It truly feels like Bellamy has come into his own in terms of what he's always wanted to be wearing. Absolutely. <laughs> like, my ideal, I feel like my version of Bellamy and his, like, ideal habitat is, like, in a comfy couch in a library surrounded by old classics with like a big sweater on Mm -hmm. and like a pipe yeah Bellamy has just always wanted to be freaking cozy he's like a grandpa yeah I'm so into the cardigan I hope we keep it and also it can be (laughs) I can totally see Bob being like I'm directing this episode I'm gonna wear a fucking sweater like like no more of these t-shirts I am putting my foot down it is time for Bellamy to be cozy I just want to be comfortable (laughs) like I can totally see that conversation (laughs) happening and they're like well he's like no 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 (laughs) Um, let's talk about Bellamy because his reaction to Clark's plan to go in and, and Josephine to, you know, to go in as Josephine and pretend to, yes, you know, yes, to be do Russell's thing. daughter, to you know, his reaction to this is not surprisingly not great. Yeah. Not a fan, not a fan of this plan. And, um, I think it's interesting how forcefully or instantaneously he just shuts this shit down you know I will talk about this a little bit more later but Bellamy's continued protection over Clark is something that we should be looking out for and watching this episode I mean Bellamy's always been protective over Clark but this kind of you know talking about nice little reversals this reminded me of that moment back in season two right after Finn had died um and Bellamy wanted to go into Mount Weather as like a spy and Clark was like no no you're not yeah (laughs) and and he's like I need a reason she's like I can't lose you um so I, I kind of liked seeing a little bit of that reversal here but I think that also comes more naturally to Bellamy who's you know very protective of the ones that he loves always sure um but he really does not like this idea especially he's like I just got you back I do not want to send you into the lion's den again (laughs) well sure sure of course um but Bellamy has very little faith in Clark's ability to pretend to be Josephine he's like Russell will figure you out in like three seconds I honestly, like, it's Clark. Clark can do anything. Clark, I mean, I even before I knew how great she'd be at being Josephine, I was like, Clark would be great at being Josephine. Yeah, I wasn't worried about it. And I think the fact that he's so worried kind of speaks to what I was saying earlier in that I think he normally has so much faith in her and so much confidence in her abilities that mm-hmm. his doubt is not a reflection on Clark, but more of his own insecurity. Oh, yeah. And, you know, yeah. like, yes, that's what I was trying to say. Yes, I totally agree with that. But I will say Clark is very much on the do better track still. Um, she is. She woke up kind of with that missive still in her mind, whereas Bellamy's train has gone a little off the rails here. Well, it is hard for Bellamy to concentrate on doing better when Clark is like constantly putting herself in peril. Well, no, no, because Clark had been in peril, I don't know, three episodes ago, um, back when they were trying to figure out how to get Clark back. Mm-hmm. And Maddie was like, let's just kill people. And Bellamy was like, mm, let's not do that. Let's protect the innocent lives. Like, he was still on that, that train, on that track then. Yeah. But in the last so few episodes, I think he's you're just tr- totally fallen off. What you're trying to say is something has fundamentally changed. For sure. Yes, that is what I'm saying. Yeah. I wonder <laughs> what it could be. 
fundamentally changed. And like, I think a lot of it too is guilt from Bellamy at being like, okay, well I have my person back. I have Clark, but to do that, I basically screwed over all of the rest of my friends. Yeah, you left him behind. (laughs) Now I think that is, like, I I get kind of why that's his driving force. And I had tweeted about the scene they released early, um, which is a couple of scenes from now, where Clark and Bellamy and Octavia and and Xavier, or, wow, Gabriel. Ooh. That was weird. I always wanted to call Xavier Gabriel. Yeah. (laughs) Um, how they, when they were all talking and, and Bellamy was like, screw innocent people. And I was like, mm, I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't know about that, like character progression for him, but like seeing him with Clark and seeing that moment where he was like, oh yeah, I still have a bunch of people left. I have to save now that I've saved you. Um, I, I get kind of where that guilt is coming from and how that's driving him right now. Yeah, I totally, I think you're right. I think it's primarily guilt, but also overcomplicated by the fact that I don't think he is in a position right now to be able to sacrifice Clark like we were talking about. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't think Bellamy will ever again be in a position no. where he can sacrifice Clark. <laughs> I don't think he was before, but again, something has fundamentally changed. She's like, quote unquote, died for him twice. Really three times if you count the fact that she died on the table, you know, in front of him and he wasn't sure if she was going to come back. Um, and I think he's just like done with Clark dying. Yeah, <laughs> I'm done with Clark dying. I Let's am not too. do that anymore. <laughs> Um, and then lastly, Gabriel is just doing a really great job keeping himself together after having to kill Josephine, the like love of his life. So he, you know, thinks at this point, at least. Um, yeah, I mean, just like I felt I feel really bad for him. He's kind of in the corner. He's hearing Clark and Bellamy and, and like getting a sense of their relationship. But he knows that Josephine is now gone. So I know. And I think like this is a really great example of like Bellamy's or Bellamy. Bob aren't they the same <laughs> Bob's directorial style because I think in an, in the hands of another director they would not be zooming in so closely and staying on his face like there is a lot of um it's very generous mm-hmm. uh camera shots of him that just linger and I think that's all Bob I think Bob's like, let's really dig into this guy and what's hit his emotional state and like how are these two people in the foreground affecting him? And so you can see like the camera, yeah, the zoom change um, and then they linger on him. It's great. I mean, I'm definitely willing to believe that it's all Bob because I think Bob is an amazing person. He's an amazing actor and I'm just, I'm totally okay believing he's an amazing director, even though I really don't like pay attention to that kind of stuff. Well, so. I was paying attention and that's yeah. what I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> And I'm the authority. All right. Sure. Fine. I'm the boss. In that. I'm the boss. You are not the boss. <laughs> we are both the boss. This is like a very common fight with Brittany. <laughs> and me. <laughs> we always talk about it. But really, I am the boss. Yeah, she's lying. <laughs> um, back in Sanctum, Murphy, Miller, and Gaia are locked up alone. The guards come and bring Murphy to the palace, where Russell's talking to Echo. Echo refuses to reveal that Riker was the one who helped her, so Russell says he's going to turn Echo into the next Simone. He then tells Murphy that if he brings back Josephine, he'll turn hi- still turn him and Amori into primes, but if Murphy fails, then Russell will kill Amori. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. There's a lot happening in this scene. Yeah. Uh, first off, Murphy, bringing the sass, not sure if he's got the credit to be cashing these checks right now. 
I don't think Murphy has any other way of being. I agree. So, but I was like, really, Murphy? Yeah, I know. I was I was thinking the same thing and how no one like snapped back like, we are in this situation because of you. I would have been like, shut the fuck up, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, we do get a little bit more demon talk here from Gaia that um, Maddie's possessed by a demon. Yeah. And we get more demon talk later on in this episode when, um, oh my gosh. Yeah. Xavier Gabriel wow I think it's just like whoever they are I want to call them their alternate names you know (laughs) um so Gabriel was saying that Simone wanted to burn him because that's what you do to demons um so I mean I I don't have like a ton to say here but I just wanted to call it out again more of that like angel demon motif that we're seeing uh god demon god demon angel but also this idea of like possession being sort of like a demonic force Mm -hmm. i think also is playing into this idea and like demonic in the sense of like demonic possession also goes like hand in hand with like black witchcraft and that's like very much still present from the last episode so there's like stuff well sure and i mean it's kind of interesting if you think about it that she's referring to the commander inside maddie's head as demonic whereas the primes are like taking over people's body and like forcing out the original inhabitants in the same way that it seems straight is trying to do and they are gods sure um, well, or angels and they're like yeah. angelic versus like this one's demonic so Mm -hmm. it's a nice juxtaposition yeah so like eye of the beholder you know demon versus god (laughs) or just bad yeah just 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 like bad let's don't let's not no more body snatching snatching um did you say snacking i said snatching oh no i didn't i said snacking don't body snack either no more cannibalism we did that (laughs) (laughs) what haven't we done on this show um, I did want to call out a couple of really great character beats because, again, I think this is what the Hunter does so well is they do so much with so little. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one is when Murphy says that he's sure Raven will come through and save Maddie. And I love seeing his faith in her. These two have such a long, crazy relationship. Um, and I really just appreciated a moment for him to sort of show how he feels about her again you know yeah. I don't think we've been missing the Murphy Raven of it all this season and I loved it yeah Murphy Raven they always steal the scene for me you know like yeah. th- they just relate really well to each other and and not just well but just their dynamic together is really interesting and I always like to see it so. yeah yeah we've been missing it a lot this season um and then the other one I wanted to call out is when Gaia mentions that she's um she's sure that something actually happened to Echo or she would have saved them and again I just I like women supporting women. I like seeing these female friendships. I like, you know, we don't spend a lot of time with Gaia developing any kind of relationship with anyone outside of Maddie. So <laughs> mm-hmm. anytime that she's like willing to throw someone a bone, I'm like, thank you. Yeah. Uh, let's let's flesh out this character a little bit. Um, so again, I just wanted to call those out because I think they're great. And we might get some more between Gaia and Echo going forward with events that happen with Echo this episode. That was very ominous. They've all seen the episode. She's a nightblood now. Yes, she's a nightblood now, but I wanted to save it for later. Okay. I was just teasing you guys. That's where that's where we're heading. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love that Murphy can speak in trig. Uh, I did not expect that. I guess I, I knew that Echo had taught Bellamy on the um on the arc, but I guess I now have to envision Echo like leading language courses. I guess maybe her and Demori. Oh, I guess Amori. Why yeah. did I never think of that? I'm not sure. I just assumed that it was Amori. 
But, like, I'm assuming now if Murphy knows and Bellamy knows that Raven probably also knows. Oh, I'm sure that so all like, of them know. So, language classes. That's what happened. Yeah. They I had like, a lot of free time up I there. Like, I like that they had, like, a trig class. Yeah. And not trigonometry. Yeah. Trig- oh, my God. Get a I swing. have so many puns Was today. that a pun? It's going to be a pun for me. Okay. <laughs> um, and I also love that Echo, like, as soon as Murphy tells her to pretend that she hates him, which <laughs> might not be a lie right now and it might not be too far of a stretch but she immediately starts like screaming at him and and she like puts her trust in him in that moment that like he knows what he's doing and that if she like follows what he needs like something will happen that they need to happen that was a very roundabout way of saying she was trusting him and I liked that yeah I like that she trusted him and I like that she's smart enough to know that she has like very little moves left on the board Mm -hmm. and like Murphy is giving her another option and she's going to take it. Well, and I'd wondered last episode, like, where we go from Echo and Murphy here, because I know Echo was feeling pretty betrayed on behalf of the group. Um, and so I'm, I'm hoping that they'll be able to kind of mend their relationship as well, because they were always kind of cute together. They're very cute. I hope they will. I think they will. Yeah. Uh, another thing, Riker needs to check himself before he wrecks himself. Like, he... Talking to Echo and being like, you should take this seriously, right after Echo basically concealed the fact that Riker was helping her. Like, there really isn't any reason that Echo wouldn't throw him under the bus right now, except for the fact that she's like, I'm assuming still hoping that Riker might prove useful. But that is that is the one reason. Like, otherwise, if Echo's about to die, like, yes, she'd be throwing Riker under the bus, you yeah. know? I mean, and basically he seals his own grave because that, like, performance of, like, sternness is basically what tips Russell off, that something's off here. And then he, like, immediately turns around and is like, I'm going to need you to perform this procedure. I was just it's like... A, and, like, Riker is... He has no poker face. He's terrible at this. Yeah. And he's clearly very nervous and he's, like, acting desperately. I was just thinking, how dare, Riker? How dare? (laughs) But luckily, luckily he was the one to help Echo because he screwed it up enough that... Yeah. Not not help Echo, but to, like, take Echo and... Yeah, handle her because he screwed it up enough that, you know, she didn't actually die. Um, But we'll get there. Yes. Um, so one thing that's interesting to me, though, is is Rikers never actually had to perform the mind drive surgery, um, but they are all trained to do this, apparently. And now uh, Russell is like, it's your time. You have to do this. Yeah. Um, as Echo says later, it is a test. It's, it's like very t- clearly a test of loyalty. So absolutely. Because Riker can't keep a straight face. <laughs> he sucks at it. So who do we think is the one who always performs it? Is it Russell who performs it for the rest of them and, like, Simone who does it for him? Or I feel like it probably is both of them. Yeah. They seem to maybe, to share those kind of responsibilities. I, I would be willing to say both. It's just interesting to me that he's never had to done it, do it before. I would have yeah. thought, like, in all of this time. I, Surely he, like, helped out at least. But maybe this is, like part of his um final initiation no like part of his fear of killing has like kept him away from that and russell's maybe respected that like fear of like actively killing right like he's able to passively accept the body but not like actively do really like pull the trigger that other step um and russell at this point is like it is time for you to like step up and like become one of us because otherwise you know your mind drive to go to better use (laughs) either with us or against us 
Yeah. Um, I just have to say, I am disgusted, like disgusted by this idea of Russell choosing Echo as his next bride. Like, I know that Simone is going to be in the head, but it's like Echo's body. Yeah. And like the violation of that is so upsetting to me. I like, I hate it. It's, it makes me sick. And it's also giving me like severe bluebird, like folktale. Bluebeard. What did I say? Bluebird. <laughs> oh, bluebeard. Sorry. Bluebeard folktale like vibes. And I am not here for it. Yeah, I I am grossed out by it. I like saw it coming and I was like, don't say it. Don't say it. <laughs> but like the way he says it, it could have been creepier. Yeah, no. Like he, it's not like a leering way, like, you're gonna be my next bride kind yeah, of thing. But <laughs> you're right. He, he he there was like no sexual connotation yeah. to it. But, but it it is like implied. It's disgusting yeah. and I hate it um <laughs> my other question about this scene is why do they need Murphy to get Josephine back is this like just killing two birds with one stone where they like you know it's proving very difficult to get Josephine back and so they're gonna send somebody who they view as expendable um I think twofold I think it's also a test for Murphy like one last test to see you know we have these empty mind drives like are you worthy of it yeah um you did help josephine originally um and number two it's murphy knows bellamy um and bellamy's the one who has josephine at this point so russell thinks um okay. that's a good point and so like murphy like knows how bellamy thinks and would know how to track him down yeah. i guess my my thought process is like what is jade's function what is her function what is her function ever she's like a really bad bodyguard She's um, like the she worst has no personality. <laughs> She's the worst bodyguard. <laughs> oh God! I just like wh- what is what is the jade, <laughs> the jade of it all? I don't get it. I don't. Know. Um, and my last thing that I want to talk about in this scene is Russell threatens Amori at the end of this scene and basically gives Murphy a twenty-four hour window to get Josephine back. And the way that he does it is just like it's a much crueler version of Russell than we've ever seen before, and it's clear that. His soft edges have been worn down a bit since the death of Simone. You know, like, he's no longer Mr. Nice Guy. He's not playing around. Um, well, to borrow a Bellarc metaphor, he has become all heart and no head. Um, oh, I don't yes. think that he's really thinking strategically anymore. He just wants his family back. Um, and so I think that brings out a colder side to him. that He's, like, willing to sacrifice whatever and whoever it takes to get his people that he loves yep. back so yeah i don't disagree he's being a jerk but he is he's being a jerk a jerk a, a jerk totally, face totally sums up what's <laughs> happening here <laughs> uh, moving on clark asks why gabriel doesn't walk through the sanctum shields at any time aside from the fact that gabriel doesn't have the code to shut off the shield though octavia defends him saying that he doesn't want to hurt his people bellamy scoffs at that coming from blood drainer herself and Octavia wants to talk to Bellamy privately, but before they get the chance, the children of Gabriel show up, and Gabriel has to reveal that he is not Xavier like they thought, and like I keep saying, um, which was particularly hard to hear for Xavier's sister, Layla. So I guess let's talk about this one at a time. Gabriel destroys the embryos. We now understand why they're having such a problem with nightbloods. Um, it's because Gabriel destroyed all of the nightblood embryos, which yes. is interesting to me i guess they they came with a thousand 
let's just say they've like perfected it so like they can always grow the babies Mm -hmm. there's nothing like that could go wrong with that sure um but in all of that time are they just using like a select few like when he and russell were experimenting it seems like they went through a lot of yeah like subjects 24 or something like that is what yeah and that was just we don't even know if that was um like all that they actually created um I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm surprised it took this long. Well, I'm surprised they still had embryos left after all this time. You know well, what I mean? A thousand is a lot. A thousand is a lot. But they also have been there a long time, and they had a long time to kind of grow their population. I don't know. I mean, like, I, I guess I was just like, oh, you only recently destroyed the embryos? That was surprising I guess that's true. I don't know. I didn't really think about it. Yeah. But uh, so Simone was going to burn him for it at the stake because Simone really likes that. So <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. Like this, I feel like we've confirmation now. Like this is the inciting incident that pushed Gabriel to like leave Sinkim and for them to be like, he's the demon. Well, it was the inciting incident that pushed him to leave specifically because that's when like Riker yeah. left the door open. Um but what made Gabriel decide to act and destroy the embryos when he did? You know, like what a great question. I don't know. I, I don't know either. And I wish I don't think we're going to get an answer. Yeah. Um, I think well, that we're just supposed to believe like he had enough. But yeah, he was like fed up. With there it. has to be like some sort of inciting incident for, for doing something that big. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, and it also sounds like this is what led to Josephine creating the oblation ritual as well mm-hmm. um which is also interesting we'll just add that to the another layer of guilt on jo- on uh, Gabriel's mm-hmm. conscious yeah him Not- leaving made Josephine start murdering babies so yeah that's fun I mean res- personal responsibility Josephine did not have to do that <laughs> and she is personally responsible for that but like I understand Gabriel would feel a little guilty and it's nice to know again that Riker is always doing the bare minimum. Absolute bare. <laughs> just enough to get by. All he does is just leave the cell unlocked. He's, I mean, a Riker man. <laughs> I do feel like I have a very clear picture of who Riker is. Yeah. I just don't like him. I think he's a coward. I yes. Think he's a coward. He's weak. Yeah. He's a weak coward. It's hot, but. Hot. Hot <laughs> as fuck. Can't have everything. <laughs> Um, Gabriel says that Simone was using the toxin as part of her quote unquote adjustment protocol. Mm -hmm. And this is the second time that we've heard this phrase. Um, I think the first time was in reference to, um, well, he, he mentioned it yesterday, (laughs) yesterday. Well, technically it was yesterday for them. Um, he mentioned it that the previous episode at the end, um, talking, he talked about adjustment protocol, but he didn't really, you know, say what it was. And then he mentioned the word adjustments when they were um, when he was giving Octavia drugs. Sure, he was like saying that they needed someone to like adjust um, the amount that you were getting and stuff. Um, so I guess my question is, what do we think adjustment protocol is? What does it mean? It is the title of the next episode, so I'm assuming it's pretty important. I feel like this is what we have been alluding to slash trying to grasp is like they had a population of people that they needed to like subdue or mm-hmm. brainwash chemically to make them more compliant and i would call that an adjustment yeah protocol 
that's what I would call it. Yeah, that's what I was kind of thinking too of like adjusting the population to be more think a certain way. Yes, to be more accepting of their certain ideology and their method of body snatching. So we had been theorizing earlier this season that they were on drugs, that like Simone and, and Russell were feeding them drugs. Yeah. And I don't think that's true anymore, but I do think they were, I mean, technically fed like red said toxins in different ways um, through the evolution of this people. Yes. To like, you know, grow this new population that completely thinks they're gods. Yeah. Know, and that are very compliant. Mm-hmm. It's like training them. Yeah. It's really gross. Um, I don't necessarily think that Bellamy's who cares if the Knolls die attitude matches where he was a couple of episodes ago. I know I, I mentioned like I'm getting some of the guilt, but it still feels a little extreme to me. I would agree. I was a little surprised by like the vehemence yeah. of his um, attitude. But again, I still think this ties into the, the thing that we always talk about that has fundamentally changed. And I'm going to get into this a little bit later. But I do think there is something interesting happening in his like drive to protect Clark specifically here that is causing him to not fully compute what it means to sacrifice all of these people. Yeah. Um, I don't think he's doing the math in a way that, like, regular Bellamy would be doing the math. True. And I also think, like, you can talk big, but when it actually comes into practice, like, are you really going to sacrifice these people? Yeah. And in a total role reversal, Octavia is the one who's, like, (laughs) peace-seeking and, like, very chill. And I love her. You know, she is committed to doing better and wants to do the plan with the least amount of casualties for both sides. And she is defending her position, but not from a place of aggression, but from a place of logic. And I, like, who are you, Octavia? I love you. (laughs) She has ascended. She has become, (laughs) like, she's leveled up to the next the better version of Octavia. She has transcended. She has transcended, if you will. Yes. That's a quote from later <laughs> in this episode. Yes, I think they know. Okay. Well, I was just saying. I'll call it out later. Um, yeah, and you know, Bellamy's attitude to Octavia in this scene is hard to watch. But again, it's still very in character because he hasn't witnessed the changes that we've seen Octavia go through. He has not seen her go through her crucible, you know, <laughs> to borrow a line. So, you know, he still is very much thinking that she's Blood Reina and he calls her out on it, which is cruel, but fair for yeah. where he is standing. Uh, also, I, I guess Bellamy knows about the cannibalism, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I would just assume they, they talk. People talk. I, but like the whole thing about last season was people weren't talking about it. Like, no one was saying it. Everyone kept being like, what happened here? And they're like, bad things. You know, like, that was the whole crux of last season. They didn't even reveal it until 6 or 5.11. So, I don't know. I just thought it was odd that, like, it's apparently well known now. Um, I guess, like, people are just ready to talk about it. Maybe yeah. Because once Dioza, once they met her, things just started coming out, you yeah. know? <laughs> the ther- therapy doctor was in <laughs> session. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Um question for you do we still ship octavia and gabriel yes yes i do that was a rhetorical question i do the answer is yes <laughs> i do um i i don't know if gabriel's gonna survive the season i'm very torn on this I'm i am like 50 too. 50 yeah I, I i see that for sure i think if he survives this season like that ship's happening right i i would think so i mean they have got a nice like little friendship here um that i really appreciate 
And do I need it to become something else? No. No, I don't need it. But I I like the idea just because I think they have a lot in common about, you know, the the bad things that they've done and they're both trying to be better. Um, I also just think they have great chemistry and I'm a shipper. So yeah, I am know, a shipper. That happens. Since, since Riker and, and Raven is my ship dead, fell through dead in the water. Um, we, we still have one left aside from Bellark, which like who the hell knows about <laughs> that ship. <I> so, <laughs> um, I did want to mention, it's really interesting because Gabriel starts mentioning these patterns and the eclipses and the hallucinations and like all this stuff. And we see Clark in the background perk up when he says this. Um, she seems very interested in this little tidbit and I'm curious if and when we're going to hear more about what she's thinking like the wheels are clearly turning and they made a point of of like zooming in on her like perk up about this Mm -hmm. and I think it happens again later in this episode too so I'm just out here wondering like what what's going on yeah, I think I think I agree that Clark is probably just being Clark, you know. Yeah. She's taking in new information and synthesizing synthesizing it <laughs> at this point in time. Um and like there's still a lot they haven't learned about this planet and about this uh the history with the Sanctum people. Mm-hmm. So, I think she's just she's just being Clark, you know. Yeah. Um I guess I can believe that they started this whole burning people at the stake thing um after they learned that the red sun was making people think they were gods um and so thus the opposite of gods is demons and you burn demons i mean i i do think that these people probably weren't given like the bible or given you know other religious texts from on earth Right. Because what's the point? Unless, I don't know, maybe they were, but... It doesn't seem like it. But it feels like the Primes could have just invented whatever they want. And, like, if you're raising people from birth to believe something, they're going to probably believe what you tell them. So well, yeah, I think that's exactly exactly right. They do, they can make it up however they want. And they, I think the idea of, like, making this some sort of mythology around demonic influences versus angelic influence them being the angels and the the gods um would be very appealing to them it's very romantic uh and um, but i'm still saying why burn people because they can but it's very 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 ugly it just like it, it, it's hard on you personally when you're burning people it doesn't it's just, seem it's to rough. bother them that much i think it probably did like russell seems like before simone died he had some sort of conscious con- conscious conscience and i'm assuming gabriel wasn't pretty gung-ho for burning people Riker doesn't seem to be gung-ho for burning people really it was just simone <laughs> maybe Miranda we didn't get to know her yeah. at all um, yeah I mean again I think you're giving him too much credit these guys are psychopaths it's not credit it's just like I, I'm very very curious the thought process that went into all of this yeah I I, th- I just like I know no, I'm overthinking you are it like overthinking by it by a far, million <laughs> but it's just wild to me um, but moving on, so Gabriel pretended to be Xavier for 10 years, which I guess we kind of knew, but I hadn't really, like, fully taken in the impact of that and what Same. that means. Same. It wasn't until these guys showed up and he had to, like, reveal himself, and I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. This is ugly. 
10 years that he's been pretending to be Gabriel and pretending to be Layla's brother. That's pretty dark. Yeah, I think it's not so much the pretending to be someone else as it is the lying that gets me. Like, for for me, in my head, I was like, oh, he just, like, showed up one day as Xavier. And so they never knew Xavier another way. But to realize that, like, Xavier was, like, a part of their community and then he body snatched him against as well. I understand the mechanics of what happened here. But then had to, like, impersonate Xavier that is like a deeper crime. I mean, it is a crime. I get why he did it because sure. he was afraid if he, well, number one, he was afraid they wouldn't accept him being Gabriel and body snatching again because that's kind of exactly what they're against. But then also the idea that like, but if they did accept that, they might try to do it again and he might just start this whole other society of like people believing in gods you know what I mean absolutely I 100% agree with you and he's not wrong I mean all evidence to support his theory that they wouldn't accept him they're literally pissed um so and they call him a traitor um yeah so yeah that all makes sense to me I don't he didn't have a lot of options here but again I also didn't realize like the impact of what that meant until this scene so I'm really glad they put it in here I mean, the children of Gabriel kept talking about how the old man disappeared like 10 years ago. And it's like, wouldn't you just assume he died if he was old? <laughs> he just, I mean, exactly. And like, what was your, what were you going to do afterward? Who, were you going to choose a new leader? Like, what are you, what are you doing, children? What's your like <laughs> precedence for like executive yeah. function? Like, <laughs> how do you pick your next leader? Is this a democracy? Like what's going on here? Is this a monarchy? Also, it's not like they'd ever find his body because the forest eats bodies. Yeah. So like he'd gonna, he was a snack in like four minutes. Yeah. Ugh, I just feel really bad for Layla. Um, that really sucks. Yeah. To like have a brother who died 10 years ago and then realize. To not even to know. To not know. Yeah. And then to have to process all of this while looking into his face. I I mean, alternatively, how good of a sister could she have been if she didn't notice that her brother got body snatched? I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, that's a good question, but I still feel really bad for her. And no, I, I, I do I, feel really I bad. I feel like her actions for the rest of this episode are like completely justified. Oh, yeah. I, I am on team Layla. Yeah. That's <laughs> what I have to say about I agree that. with that. The children of Gabriel tie up Gabriel, Octavia, Bellamy, and Clark. Gabriel tries to explain what happened to him and why he's now in Xavier's body, but the children won't listen. Before they can kill him, though, Bellamy tells them that Gabriel can make a bomb using the red blood toxin that would both allow him to save his people and allow the children to kill the primes. The children relent, and Octavia and Bellamy go to find more toxin while Gabriel builds the bomb. So I was actually a little surprised here to see that Nelson was, like, ready to kill Gabriel. Yeah. Like, you know, he is still their leader. And outside of Layla's emotional reaction, which is understandable, I feel like they should be able to understand why he did what he did and why he acted the way he acted. I don't know. Um, And what do they think they're going to do without him? You know? Well, I think they've been... I think this is, like, a combination of things. I think they realize now they've been living without... Gabriel for a very long time I think they feel deeply betrayed by this new information Mm -hmm. and I think it it speaks to their greatest fears as a unit that their leader ultimately isn't one of them he's a prime um I think there's like always this like fear in the background looming that like Gabriel says one thing but is another and this like prove is proven right here. So yeah. I think this isn't coming from a place of logic where they're like, oh yeah, we should probably give him the benefit of the doubt. He seems like a good guy. I mean, like these are all of their worst fears like coming together, and there are a lot of them feeding each other's anger. So this 
this felt pretty normal to me. I was like ready to believe it. I was like, yeah, they're going to take his head off. Yeah, I don't know. I was a little bit surprised that it was going that far. Um, but also, did the children of Gabriel know about this place? Or did they like just now stumble upon it? And if they did know... Like, why wouldn't they have come before unless they thought it was like Xavier's place? I, I'm like very curious about what this, where Gabriel's living right now and why they haven't been able to find him. I have no idea. That's a great question. I am equally confused. I'm so sorry. Maybe they just, maybe they didn't know and they were too afraid to get this close to the anomaly. But then it like begs the question, how did you discover it now? Yeah, I don't know. How did they find it now? Like, were they intentionally coming? Like you asked, are they t- coming here on purpose? Did they know about it or did they just find it? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It seems like too much of a coincidence yeah. for them to just have stumbled on it. But like, if you knew where it was, why didn't you come before? I don't know. Yeah, it felt a little bit like the writers didn't have any answers for this. And they were just like, we need the children of Gabriel now. So yeah, they appeared. We're going to just skip. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess they were looking for Josephine. So maybe that's how they stumbled upon it. Um, they were like all out searching for her. I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> not a big deal, but. It's not. I did want to say I was very impressed with Bellamy's quick thinking and his like Hail Mary plan with the bomb. Um, although I feel like Clark could have been a little bit smoother here. Uh, they're usually very much in sync, so. I mean, I just don't think that Clark is pleased with the idea of building a bomb. Oh. Like, uh, she's like, excuse me? 100%. (laughs) I get that she's not on board with this plan, and I don't blame her, but I feel like you don't need to be, like, showing the enemy that there are, like, fray lines between you. True, but I also think Clark is a little bit worried about Bellamy's state of mind right now, Uh um, and what he's willing to do, and so... I think that was like maybe her way of trying to rein him in in some in some small capacity. I mean, but yes, of course. I'm obviously Clark is right, and I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt. But I was it was just a little unnerving to like watch her like verbalize that because like normally they don't even need to talk. Yeah. Um, and I'm just I was just like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> You're using words. You're using language. <laughs> it's funny. Um, I also love that Octavia, like, happily volunteers for this, like, toxin gathering mission. She's like, ah, a perfect opportunity to talk to Bella and me in private. What a great moment for me. She's like, I'll do it. <laughs> Raises her hand. Yeah. It's very cute. She was ready. She was um, so ready. In the same way that I was surprised to see that they were going to kill Gabriel, I am even more shocked that they didn't just, like, kill Clark on the spot, you know? If yeah. If they thought Clark was Josephine, and Josephine's the worst of them, probably, you know, her and, and Simone, they both are pretty bad. <laughs> but um, I, I just, I didn't really understand why they let Clark live long enough to even have this discussion, you know? Plot mechanics. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yes. <laughs> no, I can't think of another explanation. Yeah. That. So after Echo is injected with the Nightblood Serum, she tries to talk Riker out of turning her into a host. Riker doesn't want to do it, but he also doesn't want his family to get hurt. And if it's between Echo and his family and the rest of his people, he'll choose to kill Echo. Yeah, so things not looking so good for Echo here. She's in a bit of a tough spot. Yeah, you know, um, this is not the best position to be in at this point in time. Really not good. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's... I, I'm hard on Riker, and I feel like he deserves it. It's not hard to understand, though, why Riker's doing what he's doing. And honestly, like, our own characters have done the same things before, you know, sacrificing one person to save the many. Um, I, I, I just, 
I mean, I mean, like for one thing, it's hard because it's someone we care about, yeah. and Riker isn't. Yeah. Um, but another thing, it just kind of like adds to this idea that Riker is perpetuating an evil society out of fear, and it's 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 very frustrating. Well, he's perpetuating something that he knows is wrong, and again, it's so selfish because he's had. And okay, I think a good example of this is like Gabriel just sacrificed someone that he loves mm-hmm. because he knows that it would be incredibly selfish to keep her for like another three or four centuries. Yeah. Like you've already had centuries to live. And so like I understand wanting to protect your family and that's kind of a primal instinct. And I'm not denying that because I'm sure I would be exactly the same way. Um, but it's just not a good look for you to be protecting people who are A, murderers, and B, have been alive for so many centuries. Do we think that Riker ever truly thought he could start a revolution without violence? Or was that just him trying to, like, scramble to, like, figure out a plan that would help everyone when Echo blackmailed him last episode? I think that. Yeah? Yes. I think he just... The chips were fallen, and he just picked them up where they were. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't think you could start a revolution without violence if you've lied to your entire population. But lied and I don't know. At some I, point. I, I think Riker is also super naive, um, just as a person. Like, I don't think he was ever really allowed to grow up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, no, he's in stasis. I think yeah. you're absolutely right. True, so true. Uh, it's also good to know that Riker told all the other people about the the truth about the primes and not just Lydan and her husband and then Ty, who is yeah. no longer with us. <laughs> so, I mean, there's there's just other people out there who know the truth. Yeah, and like Echo says, we don't know who they told. You know, yeah. the cat's out of the bag. You mm-hmm. can't put it back. Like, the secret's out. You're going to have to deal with it. And, like, that's that's the other part of this is, like, Riker, revolution is in the air. Like, it's happening. Yeah. The cat is out of the bag. You can't take it back. You can either get on board with the revolution, which is happening no matter what, if I die or not, or you can murder me. Yeah. Um, it's not a good look. But I did want to say, my girl Echo, what a bamf. Because mm-hmm. she's sitting here and she can, she's like not only processing what's happening to her right now, which is traumatizing in itself but she's like also able to keep up a really interesting intellectual conversation with Reichel 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 (laughs) about his moral choices and you know the sacrifices that he's about to make and it's really astonishing like how good she is you know I know we say this every episode and I shouldn't be surprised anymore but like every episode she just reminds me how strong of character she's real with it strong of body like she's working on all cylinders here and i love her i mean i did mention so Riker rightly calls out echo on the fact that like she definitely would sacrifice one person if it meant saving the money but i'm kind of curious like if for example clark were in this chair right now Mm -hmm. what would clark say at this point in time you know like, Clark has obviously done that before. Yeah. Um, but now that she's wanting to do better, like, what does that mean in this situation? What is doing better? Well, so it's, again, I think it's all context, right? Because it's like, who are you saving versus who are you not saving? Are you saving 500-year-old monsters who body snatch and murder people? If so, then sacrificing one person for them 
is not good. Yeah. That's not the right choice. So I think, again, when you're talking about these moral complexities, you cannot boil it down to an, an either a or. A numbers game. Yeah, you yeah. can't even boil it down to a yes or a no or a black and a white. These are not black and white. It's all about context. I mean, yes, I agree with you. They would be saving the primes. But as Riker points out, like, it's not just the primes who will die. It's also, like, the guards will die to protect sure, them. Sure, there's collateral people damage. Will, you know, definitely innocent people outside of that, too. So... It, it, it makes it a little muddier about, you know, the choices that you're making and who you're helping and who you're, you know, choosing to sacrifice. Sure. Absolutely. But again, like the guards, I know they're not, you know, they're, they're victims as well. But if it means ending a system of murder. Of oppression. Of oppression. Yeah. Like, again, that's really hard. And, 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 you know, this is a hypothetical that is just super meta. We've seen this you know, kind of decision play out exactly the way the Riker describes it over and over again on this show. And the reason why it's always so interesting and dramatic and um, fascinating is because the answer changes every time. Well, and it's an impossible choice. Sure. It's the tr- trolley question. Right? It's one of those things where there is no good answer. So you have to decide what you can live with. Yeah. And what's the best choice for you. Yeah. Um, and that is why this show is so compelling. Mm-hmm. Because it begs this question in an infinite number of possibilities and scenarios over and over again. Yeah. And I like that, <laughs> I like that they were like, let's just like do this in like the most simplistic, basic <laughs> formula and like pose it to you. Let's in, spell this in out. In a hypothetical. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, guys, if you didn't know, like this is our, yeah. this is what we do. <laughs> Miller questions why Gaia didn't follow her banishment, and Gaia says that sometimes you have to disobey to transcend. Miller asks why she didn't feel that way when they were following Bladrena's orders, and Gaia says it's important to learn from your mistakes. Miller takes that to heart, and when the guards come in, Miller uses his skills as a thief to lift the knife with the wire that will allow him to pick the lock and break them out. Ah, so... The scene that finally brought Miller back into my good graces. Welcome back, Miller. It's been a minute. It's been a while. But, like, number one, this was a pairing that I didn't know how badly I needed. It's excellent. I'm really into this Gaia-Miller team-up. And I, I love, you know, I love seeing how Gaia has really learned from her experiences with, with Bloodrena, And she's kind of applying that moving forward about maybe... Ways that she wished she'd behaved back then. Yeah. Um, and even more importantly, I think she's giving Miller the tools he needs to forgive himself and move forward because, you know, we've seen this season that Miller is having a really hard time of things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, I like this, like, little mini arc for him, and, and I like how Gaia plays a role in that. Yeah, and, you know, just to jump on what you were saying, Gaia is really earning her set a title more than she ever has before. And she does dole out some really solid advice to Miller. She says, mistakes are forgivable, not learning from them isn't, which is so powerful. Yeah. What a great line. What a like compact little way of saying like, you have to forgive yourself for the mistakes that you've done, but you also have to do better. Yeah. Which again is in line with everything we've been talking about this season. And again, I just really like seeing Gaia with paired up with other people who aren't Maddie. Mm-hmm. What a joy. Yeah, like it gives Gaia a little bit more um, agency. And a little bit more to do, yeah. honestly. Yeah, I mean, I, I've all, we always talk about how we love Gaia. I do. Maybe last season we thought she was going in a different direction than she ended up going, but I still feel like Gaia and that actress really just like 
can carry a scene. She can. Like, she's got such a presence about her. Um, and I love every time she's on. Yeah. So, that um, actress, by the way, is Tati Gabrielle. Thank you. I knew her name, but I was going to, like, butcher it if no. I tried. So. That's it. That's her name. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I, more Gaia, please. More Gaia. Uh, and I also actually forgot that Miller was a thief. Same. I have, like, and I am so glad they brought this back. It's been quite a while since he, like, got to utilize his thieving skills. Yeah, and, like, his little <laughs> smirk is so cute. He's so proud of himself. Yeah. It's adorable. I mean, I like, that takes it. us, like, back to season two. Oh, yeah. I mean, I just, I love those kind of callbacks and yeah. Easter eggs. It's so great. And I, I just, like, I found him absolutely adorable in this scene, which is a large tr- journey for me yeah in like a weird way it's almost like he's found himself again like being able to like reconnect and even though like maybe you shouldn't like be a thief for you know that that shouldn't be who you are but like reconnecting with like his older self before he had to make all these horrible choices and do the things that he's done I think has really kind of like de-aged him a little yeah he's found who he wants to be again and I think it's not a thief but it is just like someone who uses their skills to help his friends and I also (laughs) think just this like tiny little pep talk with Gaia and having someone say to him you're gonna be okay Mm -hmm. I you know forgive yourself you're allowed to do that in order to do better I think that was like the tiny little pep talk he needed to be like okay I got it I'm ready that was it (laughs) got it we're good Okay, so great scene and highly surprising and very enjoyable. Yeah, loved it. <laughs> Gabriel is not happy to be building the bomb. He reveals that Josephine and Simone used to experiment on people with the red sun toxin, and they discovered that it made the Knolls believe the primes were gods. Clark doesn't want to use a massacre as a distraction, so she comes up with the idea to use the less of the toxin, so enough so that the early warning bugs will freak out, prompting evacuation. People won't get hurt. To get the shield down, though, this means that Clark will need to go in, pretending to be Josephine after all. Hmm. So first off, Gabriel says that he wouldn't build Russell his bomb, and yet here he's building one for them. Um, what does that mean here? I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like that was like a nugget that we're going to need to tuck away and find out about later. I don't think he was referencing something we're already supposed to know about. Well, because then Layla calls out, like, if you have, um, weapons or if they have weapons like this, why haven't they used them on us? Mm-hmm. Um, so it feels like this is going to become important later on. But I, yes. I am curious, like, if he did build this bomb what did Russell intend it for? And my only thought is Russell wants this as like a backup just in case the Knolls ever find out um, about the the truth about the primes, you know? And like he would use that bomb as a distraction to like take all of the Knolls out and like let his family escape. Maybe. Yeah, I guess if he took, if he had antitoxin with him and then let the Knolls just obliterate each other while he's like locked up in the palace yeah they could like start then they over could start fresh that's gross. that's really gross yeah i hate that um but that's the only thing i can think of yeah the only reason i could think of that he would want a bomb like that that makes sense to me don't like it but it makes and sense i think if that is the case yep we're gonna we're see gonna that, do that. <laughs> it's the, the bomb on the wall it's Chekhov's bomb you it's know Chekhov's bomb. <laughs> it's definitely getting lit <laughs> that bomb is exploding agreed um, Gabriel here coming in hot with the zingers. He says, 
<laughs> Too bad we gave them the antitoxin, meaning Bellamy and Octavia. Now there's a sibling relationship that could use a good toxin-induced hallucination. A, a guided hallucination. A guided, hallucin- <laughs> guided hallucination, which is so true. But you know what? Turns out they didn't need it anyway because they do have a heart-to-heart, and it's wonderful. Yeah, but it would have been even better had it been a toxin-induced guided hallucination. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. I, feel I like think th- so. I think Octavia learned a lot in her guided hallucination. Well, maybe Bellamy should have one on his own. I think he needs his own journey. That's true. I don't want Octavia to complicate it. Well, I think this wouldn't be like Bellamy's journey. It would be the siblings' journey. Like, I well, think I they know. still need to work out a lot of things, and we'll get to that. Um, but I did love this little this little bit from Hot Gabriel. Take. <laughs> Hot takes from Gabriel. <laughs> Gabriel doesn't seem like he jokes much, so no, it was, I liked that it little was addition. A tiny piece of humor. It was very well placed. <laughs> So why do we think there is a pattern to the visions of people under the influence of the red sun toxin? Um, like it, our own people, like when they were under red sun toxin, didn't like see anything that reminded them of like gods or angels. So what is it that makes the gnolls all kind of react that way? And do we think this is important in any way, like that the toxin was having a similar effect on people? Or is that just kind of a, a throwaway? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like, and again, this is like coming back to like Clark reacting to this information. I feel like there's got to be a connection that she is seeing between the red sun toxin effects and the anomaly. Well, she doesn't even know what the anomaly is, really. No, I, mean, not I that, know. Not that anyone knows what the anomaly is. I know. But like, it, she's like even less so than like, say, Octavia. Right. She's like, what is the anomaly? So I think, I'm not sure, but that's. My theory. I mean, I don't think that she's seeing that connection yet. Um, if and when she learns more about the anomaly, maybe. I mean, I still personally believe that the, the anomaly is um, sentient. And I don't know if that means that the anomaly controls the red sun toxin in any way. Um, I, I honestly have no idea. But I could see the anomaly kind of leading back into that. Um, especially since Russell and the rest of them don't really know much about how the anomaly works. So maybe that's why they were doing these experiments um, on the gnolls. Yeah. But I mean, like they do zoom in on her face again. And I have to believe that it's not just because Bob's directing and wants to like keep focused on his wife. I mean, I no. do think there's a reason. No, I think they zoom in on her face because, again, Clark is being Clark. Yeah. And she's just intaking information at this point, And we're supposed to see that she is intaking information. So that later, if and when she comes up with a great plan or, like, an amazing revelation, yeah. um, we'll have seen how she got to that point. Yeah, I like that. So, like, a tiny thing here, maybe. Maybe it's tiny. Maybe not. Clark is twirling her hair in this scene for a minute. And we it's like, we see it so briefly. Um, but as we know, that is a very Josephine characteristic. Yeah, it's her tick. What do we think this means? I am terrified about what this means. <laughs> I hope against all hopes, this is just a mistake. This was just... Well... Del- so here, here's what I think. Okay. I, I'm like 99% sure this is Clark. I just, I don't think Josephine is as good as acting like Clark, um, as Clark is at acting like her. Yeah. I don't think Josephine could pull this off. And I also think there's a lot of things that happen this episode where it's like, why would Josephine do that? You know? Sure. Um, what I do think this might be is remnants of Josephine still inside Clark um like so not like Josephine herself but just like 
quirks or ticks or like small characteristics or knowledge um, that is expressing itself here slightly, but also I think could be important in the next two episodes. Like, I don't know, does Clark have to recall some word in Mandarin or does Clark have to, you know, have some other skill that Josephine would have had? And this is how they're going to explain it is like there's just still pieces of Josephine left in her mm-hmm. that she's able to draw on. That I is what I feel. love that theory. Let's just pr- pray that that's what's going on. Because, I mean, I would have a hard time believing, too. Like, we saw Clark kill Josephine. Yeah. Like, Josephine exploded. Yeah. So if they were trying to, like, switch things around on us, I I don't think I would believe it. I think it would be, like, retconning. Um, it just wouldn't. I mean, like, they'd have to have a really good explanation for it. They would. And I, I'm not particularly interested in obviously no i'm like i'm i mean i liked josephine would love her in another body i'm done with her and clark yeah <laughs> we're done with that i do i do like this idea of like pieces of like remnant code swirling around in there and like presenting itself through these like tiny minor ticks yeah or whatever i'm cool with that i just like it could be just a mistake but that's not in Clark's language like Clark never plays with her hair and because that's such a specifically called out Josephine thing it was odd um for that to have made it in there if it was a mistake so I don't like it we'll see I don't like it what (laughs) I do like though is Clark taking stock of all of the things she's done and making a solid effort to not repeat them specifically she says this is Mount Weather all over again and I feel like this is like a personal test for her, a trial to do better. Um, and she has like mandated for herself that like we're not going to repeat the mistakes of the past. Yeah. And I mean, Mount Weather was like the true moment for her when her life turned or where like things changed for her morally. Yeah. Um, and I like this idea that like, she, you know, we've seen Mount Weather illusions this whole season. Oh, yeah. And I like the idea of her being able to change what she's doing going forward, even though she can't change the past. Absolutely. Um, it's exactly what Gaia said. Yeah. Doing better. It's, it, honestly, it's, it's doing better. Thing. It's so great. It's Monty's missive. Monty. He knew what was up. He did. <laughs> Sweet little pacifist. I also love uh, Clark coming in with a third option, again, as she is wont to do. She always does. Um, it's, it's just, I, I really love seeing the way that her mind works and how you know she like looks like we were saying like Clark being Clark taking in all of this information earlier she looks at things from all sides and is able to like put together options that other people might not have considered because they're a little more subtle or there's you know a little more out there she's so smart she is so smart so smart and like people just do not give her enough credit yeah She's, I mean to be fair they give her a lot of credit they do but like I don't think you can ever give Clark enough credit that's true <laughs> uh and just one little line here when um Clark is like I need to go on and pretend to be Josephine and Gabriel's like mm, Bellamy won't like that nope <laughs> not gonna like it Gabriel knows what's what <laughs> yeah I also like the idea of like Gabriel having been alive for so long and interacting with so many people is a really good judge of character yeah and like he just like gets really good at reading people and it's I mean it's not hard you could be the 
an illiterate (laughs) body language person and still know what's going on here. But I do like that he, like, picked it up and called it out. Yeah. He's going to be real confused when Gabriel meets Echo. He's going to be like, who's this? (laughs) Wait a minute. It's like when Russell met met Echo and he's like, I thought. No. Okay. Um, I also really love how confident Clark is in her abilities. It's so refreshing. I love seeing her back in the saddle and taking charge and, like, owning her, like, knowing she can do this and do it well is so great. I I just missed Clark, guys. Yeah. I mean, Josephine was fun, but, like, Clark is my heart and soul. I love her so deeply. And she's just, she commands every scene that she's in. And I, I, I she's just the best. Yeah. <laughs> Eliza Taylor. She was gone too long. <laughs> is so good as Clark. Yeah. As Octavia and Bellamy gather more toxin, Octavia tells them that the anomaly spit her back out for Bellamy. She wants to help him and their people. She knows she's done horrible things that she can't take back, and she's dedicated to earning forgiveness. Bellamy tells Octavia that although she's his sister, he doesn't consider her his responsibility anymore. Oh my god, what a scene. Yeah. Holy this shit. This <laughs> has been a long time coming. Oh, my God. And Octavia comes in with one of her best lines yet in this. And, you know, it's it's really the perfect opening for this conversation with Bellamy. She says, what do you say when I when when sorry isn't good enough? Because it's an apology that also acknowledges there's still work to be done. Yeah. You know, it's an admission of of your own complicit responsibility and making this work. And still apologizing. It was it was a great opener. Yeah. And very proud of her for it. Well, again, I, this is something that I say every once in a while. I think saying sorry is really important. But saying sorry isn't all you have to do to make up for the, the bad things that you've done, you know? Absolutely. Um, and I like that Octavia is both, number one, acknowledging that she is sorry. Yeah. Um, because I've been waiting for her to say it for like three years now. Yeah. And Bellamy deserves an apology. Yeah, he does. Um, but then she's also saying like, but I'm not just like saying I'm sorry and hoping you're going to forgive me because I know that I have a lot to make up for. Sure. And for me, this scene is really um, probably the best scene that Octavia and Bellamy have had together ever since the beginning of season three, when Octavia had wanted to leave um, the, the wanted to leave Sky Crew and Bellamy's like, your place is with me. Like you'll always belong with me. Yeah. Um, I have not seen like a truly great scene between the two of them. Until now, since that moment. I I would go even further and say I think this is the best scene between the two of them. Well, this, I think, is certainly the most cathartic scene just because we have seen Bellamy's and Octavia's issues ever since the first episode. Like, they, you know, have both had a hard upbringing and they've come to rely on each other in really unhealthy ways. Um, and, And I love kind of seeing that this is going to start... This is really a start. The scene is, you know, not not forever, like an apology, like we're good now kind of scene. But it's like, this is a start toward a better direction for these two, toward a healthier relationship. And I'm really excited about it. You know, I, I love that Octavia, she describes that as she started down on this path, like I think she knew this wasn't the right direction to be going, but she like could not figure out how to turn around and find her way back. And that's kind of what we've been saying a lot is like she always knows that what she's doing is wrong but she doesn't really have the tools to fix herself yeah I mean she literally says I was lost in the dark which is true because she was in the bunker but also (laughs) metaphorically true yeah um and it's something that they said that 
that um, um, Pike said to her in her hallucination. And I love, like, in a similar way that Bellamy said it last episode to Clark, Octavius tells Bellamy, I need you, which is such an, it's such an important admission of vulnerability that we've never seen from her before. She's never, I mean, she's always resented her codependence on him. Yeah. And so I think she's always been like, I don't need you. I'm fine on my own, whatever. But, like, the idea and the sentiment of her saying, like, that's not true. I need you the most mm-hmm. is really important. And it's important to verbalize it. I think it's equally as important, though, in this scene that, yes, Octavia may need him. And that, I'm sure, is good to hear on some level. But Bellamy also really had to come to the conclusion that, like, Octavia is not his responsibility. A Men. Like, this is something we've been waiting for and pushing for for six seasons now because it's not a healthy way to have a functional relationship with a sibling. Um, and it just led to some really um, toxic, toxic situations Absolutely. between them. And so, like, it is important that Octavia talks about her guilt and talks about how sorry she is and talks about how she's going to do better. But it's also important that Bellamy's like, okay, but, like, I also feel differently about you now and I think in the, in my opinion him feeling differently is a good thing absolutely like these are two people who are having who are coming to this conversation this like neutrals place from very different starting positions and they're coming together they are not this is not a meeting of the minds <laughs> I think that's important yeah like, they still have a lot of work to do here to, to reach middle ground but the places that they're starting are so much better than where either of them started were before Mm -hmm. you know we are like halfway through this journey because where Bellamy started with his codependency issues and responsibility obsession with Octavia was so toxic for himself and for her and vice versa Octavia's we've got into all of that before you know was so self harming in every way so they have both made these like incredible strides toward a healthier version of their relationship and they're not done yet but they're getting there well what I like about this too is it's not it doesn't sound like it's going to be about them fixing their relationship it sounds like it's going to be them building a new stronger relationship you know what I mean yeah which I think is is a pretty big distinction well sure and I think that's that's like you know he like Bellamy broke their relationship. He basically like disowned her and was like, "You're not my sister anymore." I, I mean, I think Octavia broke their relationship. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm saying like she did, but he was <laughs> the one to say like, "I don't recognize you anymore. I don't see you as my sister." Yeah. And so at the end of this, where he's like, "What do you want me to say?" and she's like, "Tell me I'm your sister," and he says, "You're my sister." It's like they're starting over. Yeah. This is a fresh slate. They ha- all of that baggage from the past has been not wiped clean. Not at all. But uh, <laughs> we'll get there. But this is a new page, yeah. new chapter. Turn and the I, page. I really like that. Um, I, I did love um, in the script that at, at the end it says that Bellamy is afraid to let himself love Octavia again. And he's not even sure if he can. And he's worried what that thinks or what that says about him if he if he can't. Yeah. If he can't love his own sister, like what does that say about the person that he's become? Um, and I, I just, I liked that little bit that we don't quite see translated on the screen. Sure. But yeah. I also am like, of course he loves her. You know, I think this is just a Bellamy who again is afraid to let himself be a, 
emotionally vulnerable to someone who has abused him for so long um that he's like built up these walls around himself to protect himself but he'll he'll knock them down I mean I think he will but I I also think like it's okay to to not love your abuser like it's okay that if someone's abused you that you can cut them off and say like I don't love you anymore absolutely I think Bellamy loved his sister from season one and Octavia's definitely not been that for a long time and she's not even that now like she's someone different and so he's got to kind of learn like just because you're my blood doesn't necessarily mean that I have to love you and I have to forgive the things that you've done um and I I think he will because he's Bellamy and yeah Octavia has always been important to him but I I think it's gonna be a journey I think it is too and I'm excited to see it um I am really glad that Bob was the one who got to direct this scene even though I'm sure it was really hard to be in front of the camera so much because he has a lot of screen time this episode and Mm -hmm. I can only imagine how like taxing that would be but I love that he got to direct this because like I was saying earlier his style is just really generous with focusing on characters faces for a really long time like he waits a beat before cutting and that way you get an entire performance and reaction shot from these actors who are given the space to breathe and live in a performance and in a scene in a moment. Um, And between these two characters who we know so well and who are so used to working together and who are having this like really emotional journey played out on screen in two or three minutes, it's really important to feel like this is, this is like a breathable, livable person. You know, Mm -hmm. I think his camera work does such a good job of like letting their face do so much expressive work um and I'm just like very impressed with it I always wondered how because there are like certain actors who will like direct an episode that they're in and I'm like how do you do that it's how do you like direct while you're on stage in the scene you know you have to like give direction and then you do the scene and then review everything but I mean like do, do you like do your scene and then take a minute and say, okay, cut. <laughs> like, like I just, it's like you're just doing two jobs and it's just very impressive yeah, to me. Yeah, I mean, but beyond that, I like the planning and the, Well, like, that, I, that, I mean, that I'm with you oh 100%. My God. But I just more of mean like, he was like in so many scenes. I know. Just like on a pure practical level, you are doing two jobs. Well, That's and I insane. Think, I think Jason said like he was like, we weren't, this wasn't the episode they originally had him slated to direct mm-hmm. because it just turned out that like he had, so much work in front of the camera they were like I don't know if this is a good idea but actually I think it was a great episode for him because there's so much Bellamy and Octavia stuff and yeah. he really gets, gets that what kind of shot you need to yeah. express this best yeah good job Bob good job Bob love you Bob thumbs up <laughs> Echo is bleeding black blood and Riker knows that means it's time to make her into a host In an effort to stall him, Echo tells him the story of her past, that she was once a girl named Ash and was forced to kill her friend Echo to save her own life. And once she killed Echo, Queen Naya forced her to take Echo's place and her name as Naya's spy. Riker is sorry this happened to her, but it still won't change his mind. Before he gets the chance to wipe her, Gaia and Miller show up and release Echo, who immediately kills Riker. Holy shit, this flashback was so good. Yeah, you know, we have been teased for this whole season that we were getting Echo's backstory, and I honestly did not expect this in the slightest, and I loved every second of it. I don't know why I was thinking 
that it would be like almost akin to Lost, whereas like the whole episode would be getting like echo flashbacks. But even just getting this little bit right here, I think really informs so much of how I'm now seeing Echo as a character. Yes. Again, it's that like economy of writing. They do so much with so little. Like this is only four minutes yeah-ish. Maybe. It feels really long, but it's not. You know, it, it's the breadth of, of one intercut yeah. between trailer, uh, uh, between commercials. So it's a pretty short scene, but they accomplish so much. There's so much character work going on here. And the way that they bring it back, the way that they frame it in, you know, as she's in the chair having this conversation with Riker and then bring it back to that place, knowing what we know now, yeah. is so good yeah you know I I love this idea that Echo has had to take on several roles in her life that she's never wanted but she's done it to survive and like those roles really informed her own development um so it's like she's gotten to this point where she like can't really separate who she was and who she pretended to be yeah where it's like all of the different personas she had to adopt either as a spy or, you know, as a survivor or whatever, have melded together with her actual pure mm-hmm. echo or ashness, and she can't differentiate them. And yeah. that's a terrifying place to be, you know? I, I loved the way they wrote this, making it seem like the girl who is the better and more capable one is actually not the echo we know. It's not echo at all. You know, it's the reveal of who echo really is, the scared scrawny desperate child is such a richer and deeper backstory for her and helps us place her and her actions in so much better context it's it was really brilliant I have a theory that Ash isn't even her real name Mm -hmm. um I think that you know we we heard earlier this season that she was found when her house was burned down um and she was hiding with her mother and her mother died in the fire and she was brought to Naya I feel like Naya is the kind of person who would like assign her people new names like she would call her Ash because she was found covered in ashes I totally see that um I don't know if this is like going to be a thing at all I don't know if you know the the show's gonna be like just kidding her name isn't even Ash but I, I feel like that is a backstory that I can accept even if it's not canon in the show yeah I like that piece of headcanon and if if it's not her real name I also wonder if she even remembers what her real name is you know yeah she was so young yeah that's such a good point I also just want to give a little shout out to the to the girl who plays Ash, Cal or Kai Dolmans. Um, she gave an amazing performance. I I every time I see these like little kids doing these like really adult scenes, yeah, she like had to stab somebody and get blood dripped on her face. Like, yeah, God, she was so professional and so good in this scene, and I, I she just deserves a lot of credit. I thought the, both of the girls were good. They were both yeah. great. They were both great. Oh my gosh. And like such a turnaround. I loved the idea that like we had seen that they casted young Echo so long ago, but it wasn't even our Echo. No. It was a different person. Like wild, it was man. A double surprise. It was. <laughs> um, but Echo, she really uses whatever tools she has to get what she wants. And this is something that she has obviously had to pick up again to survive. Um, but I saw a lot of people complaining online this was, like, out of character, that she was, like, giving away too much and, like, holding out her cards for Riker to see. But I personally think that in Riker's case, the tools that Echo was using was the truth because she knew the truth had the biggest impact on him. And, like, the the truth is, like, the most powerful 
way to manipulate him that she has. Yeah, and I like they call out this is stalling. Like it's not like either one of them are pretending that this is anything other than it is. But I think she sees there's this like kernel in Riker that she can appeal to and the truth is the best way of getting to that. Unfortunately, it doesn't work. Well, I I think even her saying that, yes, she's stalling is a manipulation because it adds, it, it, it like informs Riker like just how scared she is, which she, I think she is. Like, she is. Know, she's a person. Of course, she's scared at this moment. Um, but it's like really her like using that truth as a weapon that I just really loved. And I, I, I'm so impressed with the way that she handles herself in all of this. And I don't know, we, we gush about Echo a lot. Well, um, I feel like we have to gush about Echo because she doesn't get the attention she yeah. deserves from certain people. And I'm more than happy to make up for it. Yeah. Um, I do. It's so interesting because Riker, he ultimately, he, he this does not, this tactic does not work. <laughs> he doesn't care, ultimately. Um, and he does indeed try to kill her. But his own weakness literally gets him killed because he, he can't even stand to face her and like stick her when she's fighting so hard for her life and so he calls the guards in but guess what the guards are Gaia and Miller I don't know if I would call not being able to kill a weakness but I think it's his cowardice here of he can't do it himself but he's going to like make other people do it I think that's a better word for it yeah yeah it's cowardice I was trying to think of another word beside weakness I actually deleted that multiple times when I was writing this but I couldn't think of another word and that's what it is yeah um, so what do we think Gaia is thinking when she sees Echo's nightblood? Like, her face is so inscrutable. She's just kind of, like, in shock and awe. I think Gaia's religion is deeply in the process of evolving. And it has been for the last couple of seasons, um, ever since we discovered that, or she discovered that nightblood could be kind of artificially made. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we even saw this earlier this episode where, or I guess really last episode, where she's brought in, um after her banishment um, because she chose to to not obey Maddie and I think that's kind of a big step for her because she's you know thinking like sometimes I mean sometimes to disobey you, you have to trans or to disobey or what, what what does she say sometimes you have to disobey to transcend that's yeah. the quote um, but I think for her it's more of just kind of, kind of realizing what she really believes in and what are the most important tenets of her religion and how those kind of interplay with her own faith moving forward and I think here just seeing Echo it's another one of those moments that reminds her that the things that she grew up believing are not necessarily sacred and true um and like she's got to to figure out a way to like incorporate these things into her belief system because she's always going to be a person who operates on faith yeah so it's just what that faith is and how that faith uh, manifests itself yeah I agree do we think that Echo being turned into a Nightblood is going to become significant at some part of this season or I guess even next season? Maybe. Like, is she going to be given the flame? Is she going to become a prime? You know what would be such a great thing? If they took the flame out of Maddie's head and gave it to Echo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, first off, I don't think Maddie is capable of being a commander. She is 12 and I she shouldn't have to no, be. No, she shouldn't. Like they have another option. The yeah. only reason she felt so compelled to take on this responsibility for herself was she was the only one. Now, to be fair, Maddie is the only true born Nightblood. Um yeah. Echo and Clark were both made and that is kind of the initial 
um, pushback against Clark taking the flame back in season four was that like she's not a true nightblood. Well, she wasn't a true nightblood, but she also wasn't a grounder. Echo is. Yeah. So, but I'm what I'm saying here is I think that with Gaia kind of re-examining what her faith means, mm-hmm. I think she might be able to more easily accept someone who has artificial nightblood because that person will be, you know potentially a good leader for her people yeah um and someone that she can follow and i think that echo and gaia have had a lot of mutual respect that we've seen for each other just because they both are kind of entrenched in that religion still yeah um and so yeah i i could see echo getting the flame i don't think she's gonna become a prime no Um, i don't either but i do feel like her getting nightblood has to be significant otherwise why would you do it oh i agree there's definitely gonna something's gonna happen here this is just phase one yeah and technically like i guess wouldn't echo probably have a neural mesh as well because she was in polis at the beginning of season four right after ali's um spell was broken whatever whatever after Allie was destroyed mm-hmm. um Echo was already there in Polis and I'm assuming that means that she was under Allie's thrall as well because everyone kind of was in yeah, Polis so you're so I'm saying like I think Echo took the chip yeah and therefore would have the neural mesh so she could fight back if the primes tried to take over her mind which I don't think this is going to even come into play so Hopefully, I don't have to worry about it. But yeah. No, but I think it is a good thing to remember because I certainly didn't. But it, it does make sense that she would also have the same tech in her mind. I mean, I don't believe it was ever confirmed. You can tweet at us if it was. But I, I think she probably does. Does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Echo kills Riker. And right before she stabs him, she tells him hesitation kills, which is what Naya said to, I guess, Echo, the, the original the other Echo. Echo. Um, when Echo failed to kill the the sky from Sangeta crew, the spy from Sangeta crew. <laughs> um, so it's just interesting to me that she both used her story to like tell Riker what it means to kill and how that's going to change your life. But in a strange way, she was also using the story as a lesson that like, if you don't kill me, I will kill you. Um, and, and, you know, that's kind of what happened. Yeah, it was a hidden message. Like, buddy, you have two options. Yeah kill or be killed do we think that echo kills Riker out of necessity or revenge oh i think it's both yeah i don't think those two things are mutually exclusive i actually think it's more out of revenge i don't think there's like a real reason she would need to kill Riker in this moment um and he could still prove useful in some way but i think she really was just like screw you i mean yeah i think there was a definite fuck you there but i also feel like being trained the way she was like you do not he's a liability yeah he just is he's an he's a loose end that needs to be tied up yeah um but i I think it's both um and then lastly is Riker actually dead we don't see him like die Die. (laughs) he's definitely been stabbed (laughs) nobody no dead i think i'm like about 90 percent yes that he's dead 10 percent no he's not well and also he still has a he he still has a mind drive like he can be re-resurrected yeah but i don't want that because Uh, i would miss riker's body i would miss (laughs) that sounds terrible (laughs) i would would miss his face yeah um i would but i a don't know if he's actually dead he could be I mean, we saw Jordan. Speaking of which, where the hell is Jordan? He's being looked after by Priya the Sun. Yeah, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> um, Jordan got stabbed pretty bad. Yeah. And they're patching him up. So I feel like they can patch. The way they shot it, it made it seem like this was like a death blow. But again, 
in my opinion, no body, no death. Yeah, I'm with you there. So <laughs> we'll, we'll have see. to see. We will see. I feel like we're going to get confirmation yeah. next episode. One way or another. One way or another. He's alive or he's dead, but we'll know very soon. <laughs> when Bellamy and Octavia get back, Gabriel reveals the new plan. Bellamy's not happy that Clark is risking her life, but oddly enough, it's Octavia who comes to Clark's defense, saying they should try to save as many lives as they can. Suddenly, the Sanctum guards show up, and in the chaos, Murphy sneaks into the tent. Clark realizes this is the perfect opportunity to put their plan into action. She pretends to be Josephine and follows Murphy back to Sanctum. So, I think what I have been referencing and alluding to all episode is very plainly drawn out in this scene. It is clear where Bellamy's priorities lie. He would rather let masses of unnamed people die if it means that Clark can stay safe um and you know she says we don't have any other options here and he's like we do have another option we can go with the bomb plan which will kill many many people um which is all to say like this is not platonic he's he does not treat other people of his group with the same level of hysteria that he does with clerk and is demonstrated throughout this entire episode yeah i I mean, I don't disagree. I do think Bellamy now, again, knows what it feels like to lose Clark. And that, like, again, I think he's acting more out of fear here. I think Bellamy, you know, had this been a while ago when Octavia was still in his good graces, would also not want her to risk herself. I don't think he'd be okay with any of his friends risking themselves. Um, But I think just given the, like, trauma that he's just been through of losing, like, this, like, person who means so much to him has really just like made him act out of fear going forward and that's what we've been seeing a lot of this episode yeah it's definitely fear but what I'm trying to pinpoint is the specific way in which he cares more about Clark in a specific way than he does about the other people of his friends it's not the same no I mean Clark is his person yeah like that is I think that's been established and that is who they are to each other. Like, uh, I don't know what to tell you guys. Like, <laughs> I just want confirmation is all I'm asking for. Um, Moving on. I <laughs> I love that Clark says, what would Monty do? Because I, th- I feel like this is their version of like, what would Jesus do? It's like <laughs> WWMD, what would Monty do? It's so cute. Uh, Yeah, I love that Monty keeps getting call outs. Just like keeping his, his spirit alive in and different ways. Memory. I agree. It's um, great. But I am so here for Clark and Octavia finally being on the same team again. I loved like when Octavia was defending Clark and Clark's little smile to her. It just, oh my God, it was so refreshing. It was so nice to see Um, these two people, you know, are such big characters. They both mean so much to Bellamy in different ways. And they've always clashed a little. And I, I like whenever they get the chance to be on the same side, because I think they boot, they, they booth, they both do have a lot of respect for each other. Um, you know, especially Octavia toward Clark. Yes. Clark also for Octavia though. I think Clark understands what Octavia has been through, or at least like can see what she's been through and, and knows how hard things must've been for her. Yeah. And I also think Clark, I think she recognizes like how special Octavia is mm-hmm. and like how, they are very different people, but they have, they are unique and like strong in their own ways. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and then Clark's face, you know, Murphy comes into the tent. And at this point, Clark knows that Murphy was ready to kill her. Like, yeah. actively kill her. Not just help Josephine when he thought that Clark was dead, but, like, help Josephine kill Clark. Um, and that's got to change things. And Clark's face doesn't give anything away when she sees Murphy. It's, like, very cautious. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, like, anger. It's not um, relief. It's not anything. It's it's just, like, she is trying to figure out how she feels about him at this moment, and it really shows. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think she really knows where Murphy stands for her right now. Yeah, and I love that in, like, true Murphy fashion, he just, like, sneaks right into the tent amidst all the chaos, just, like, cuts a nice little hole for himself. Like, what a cockroach. (laughs) Um, (sighs) And I don't want to harp on this too much, but I have to say, Bellamy finding out that Echo's in danger from Murphy here versus him finding out that Clark is in danger, the reactions are just so different. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean... It, at they, this point, it's like visually demonstrate this. Like how many different ways? Can yeah, it, they... it becomes repetitive for us to point it out. Well, sure, because we see it so clearly on the screen in every single episode. But then they don't do anything. I feel like we have to defend it. Yeah, because of I feel like I'm being gaslit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like speaking about being gaslit, <laughs> Clark rushing over as soon as she's cut free to remove Bellamy's gag, and they're like just staring at each other their gazes it's so it's so it's romantic it's romantic guys like she's like let me hear let me like undo your gag and then leave the other two people gagged it's like like, hello and then meanwhile there's octavia in the background she's just like the number one bellark shipper over here she is glowing watching these two love each other Octavia has heart eyes for their heart eyes yes it's it she was it was glowing she was glowing and I love the way that Layla comes to see that Clark isn't Josephine is that Clark you know like spares her and and Clark I mean Clark is our Clark yeah I mean I think this is a really good example of like this is clearly Clark yeah not Josephine yeah like this is like she can't be Josephine because she was twirling her hair right like Josephine like at this point Josephine had no reason to like keep pretending she was Clark a and b there's no way she wouldn't just shoot Layla yeah um so I feel like this is like pretty solid evidence I mean like yes Josephine would shoot Layla if she stopped pretending to be Clark yeah but she didn't stop pretending to be Clark so she's got to be Clark right (laughs) right Exactly. Yeah. And also one last thing is um, finally she brings Belle around to her side and they both say for Monty. So is this like their new slogan? Because I love it. I hope so. It's like their new battle cry. Yeah. But it's like the opposite of a battle cry. It's a peace cry. Yeah. It's a mission statement. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah. Clark reunites with Russell and plays her Josephine role flawlessly. Even I am a little scared. <laughs> Russell tells Murphy that he and Hamori have earned their place here. Then Russell takes Clark down to the labs where she finds Maddie tied to the chair. Clark has to pretend to be Josephine, though, and brushes Maddie aside and is then disturbed by Maddie's violent reaction. Clark puts Maddie back under and then tells Russell that it's time for her to get a new mind drive. It was so disturbing to watch Clark have to pretend not to be Clark to Maddie. Like, it was truly heartbreaking, and I... It really... I mean, it broke Clark's heart, too. You could see it on her face. Like, she was trying to conceal it. And she was doing a good job in front of Russell. But, like, as soon as he turned around, it was just, like... It was was really hard for her Yeah, it took a toll on her. I mean, honestly, Clark 
in general, plays Josephine so much better than Josephine played her. Oh, my God. Although, to be fair, Josephine didn't really know Clark um, when she was playing her, whereas Clark has now, like, seen and talked to and experienced the the, the Josephine of it all. They're friends. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I still think this is, like, Clark's forte. I think she's really good at at this. Like, she, she, she knows how to act. Um, and I don't think Josephine could have ever done as, as well at being Clark. Well, no, because Clark is just so smooth and she's so good at rolling out her plan, like on the fly. Like she is, her improv skills deserve a lot of credit. She's a very good improv actor. (laughs) She's great. Um, I also wanted to call out, so Maddie threatens Josephine, who's actually Clark in this scene and says, we'll kill you. And we see that Clark is clearly concerned about who this we is. I mean, I think she's even more concerned about her her daughter, like, seemingly losing her mind. Yes. Yes. She's but, I mean, I think, I think she could have read we as, like, we as Sky Crew will kill you, that you killed Clark. I guess that's true. I feel like there was, like, a general, like, oh, my God, what is wrong with you? Well, I think she's just never seen Maddie behave like this. Yeah. Um, which has got to be jarring for her. So... I don't know. And I honestly, I really hope that Maddie finds out next episode. Same. I um, can't stand this. But I'm, I'm wondering, like, if she's going to find out before they delete Shade Hedda, delete his code, or, like, what will happen if she finds out that Clark is alive while Shade Hedda still has control of her, you know? That's more interesting to me. Yeah. I hope they do it that way. I do, too, because I think she got into this position because of Clark, but, like, it's harder to walk yourself out of a bad situation than it is to get into it. Yeah. And Maddie is is trapped right now by and Shade I f- Hedda. I feel like Shade Hedda is using her rage. Yeah. And what is what is he going to – what then is he going to do when that is no longer a tool for him to, to, to push? Yeah. Um, so that would be more interesting to see. And then last thing, is Clark going to be turned into a prime? Very possibly. <laughs> I kind of feel like she might. I don't know. The next episode um, talks about like a, a special naming day. Um, and we'll get to that in a second. But I think she'll at least come close to becoming a prime. Um, but I'm, you know, just given what this show, it, it tends to go farther than you think it would. Yeah. I think she might become a prime. I don't know if it'll matter. Like, I don't think she would be the type to, like, steal someone else's body. No. But <laughs> um, I, I think she'll probably have a mind drive. Yeah, I, I, do, I do think she's going to get a mind drive. Yeah. I think for sure. That's the end. Yeah. yeah. So let's do some discussion points. Let's talk about the title meaning in this episode. Again, it's called Ashes to Ashes. Um, these were originally lyrics to the bubonic plague poem that they would sing after they burned all the dead bodies to avoid spreading the disease further ring around the rosy pockets full of posy ashes ashes we all fall down yeah <laughs> um yeah so that's obviously a, a reference to the ashes yeah in that song um i think there is a clear connection to the burning at the stake motif that we saw last episode and also to the like metaphorical burning of the way of life and order in sanctum as we know it um you know it's just their city is burning to the ground before our eyes but I think the most important connection here and I love the significance of it is obviously to Echo's backstory whose real name or we think is her real name is Ash um and she you know like you had mentioned earlier her 
her village burned mm-hmm. to the ground. Um, and she's also returning to herself and finally opening up these hidden pieces of her past and revealing them to us in a really beautiful and fascinating way. Yeah, I don't know if Echo's ever really forgiven herself for killing her friend. I think she knows she did what she had to do to survive, but like she doesn't feel good about it. And I oh, think God, it's informed no. how she's been ever since. So I, I heard from, maybe it was Tazi Telly's, they had filmed a scene back in like episode four, the one where she and Bellamy had the fight. Mm-hmm. They filmed a scene where she went and like lit a candle for her younger self. Um, it was when they were also like uh, carrying the, the uh, lanterns. Yeah. It was like that situation. Um, so I think she's really trying to learn how to let go of the trauma that she experienced and forgive herself because she was just a kid and she, you know, didn't deserve anything that happened to her. No, she And was she couldn't have controlled it. As much a victim as the real Echo yeah. was. So let's talk about our favorite lines. Yeah. My favorite line is from Gaia. She says, mistakes are forgivable, not learning from them isn't. And I think that was a great line just for Gaia and Miller, but I also think it's been a great line that kind of encompasses this whole season um, and this whole show, but like specifically this season of just, we've all done bad things, but we have to like learn from them and figure out how to do better from them going forward. Yeah. So. It's so great. And what about you? I loved that line. It was really hard. I was going to pick that one, but then I ultimately picked you're my sister, but you're not my responsibility. And not anymore from Bellamy because like how many times have I heard you're my sister, my responsibility mm-hmm. and this sort of like inverse of that, idea and the growth that it shows and the maturation um, of their relationship but also his relationship to himself is so important for their healing yeah and I am at this this scene was so long coming and it really per, it delivered it really delivered <laughs> it to me it really did so I was so happy um, what was your favorite scene my favorite scene was the entire kind of act that we saw between Echo and Riker where she like tells him her backstory but then also is like rescued by Gaia and then kills um, Riker I just I loved that whole piece I think it's really shown us a deeper look into Echo um, also a deeper look into Riker didn't like what I saw there nope um yeah it was just great and it was well worth the wait I've been excited to see Echo's backstory this whole season and I'm so glad that we got it and it was even better than I imagined so I agree a hundred percent and that I was also going to pick that scene (laughs) but instead I will pick Bellamy and Octavia's long overdue heart to heart in the cave which for all of the reasons that I just mentioned it was a beautiful scene I loved every minute of it So the next episode is 612 Adjustment Protocol. We are getting very close to the end of the season. So close, guys. Two more. In this episode, a special naming day changes everything in Sanctum, and Gabriel comes face-to-face with an old friend. Um, So my first question is, who is getting named? I don't know. And I'm kind of wondering, it's either Echo as, like, Simone, um, which I don't think she's actually going to get named, but I think that is a possibility, but... I think more likely the special naming day is them bringing back all of the primes at once. Mm. So they might make more of Skycrew or, or more Knoll's um, Nightbloods. Sure. So they can bring back all of the primes. Um, again, I don't, I don't know or believe that they actually will succeed, but I think that could be the setup. Um, second, Gabriel and Russell are finally facing off, and I am ready for it. Oh, yeah. It's We've been showdown. waiting for this whole season to see them kind of 
you know, come together and talk about their differences. <laughs> Sanctum's not big enough for the two of them. Sanctum's not big enough. It's high noon at Sanctum. <laughs> yes, thank you for spelling that out. Um, I do worry, as I mentioned earlier, they seem to be killing off all the primes. We only have Russell and uh, Priya left at this point. Um, and then Gabriel, of course. And I'm hoping this doesn't mean that they will kill all of the primes, like including Gabriel. But again, I'm like 50-50 on this. I yeah. really don't know. Um, I think Russell, I'm about 75% sure he's going to die. Um, Priya, I honestly don't really know about Priya. I'm guessing probably die. <laughs> but yeah, Priya, feel, it feels like she's going to die. But Gabriel, 50-50. So we'll see which way it swings. Yeah. I don't know. It's going to be good. Yeah. It's going to be good. And that's our episode, guys. If you'd like to contact us, you can. You can email us at skycastcrew at gmail.com. That's S-K-A-I-C-A-S-T-K-R-U at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us at skycast. And you can tweet at us at our own Twitter accounts. I am at bperlman89. And I'm at Sarah R. McCabe. And that is our episode. So until next time, may we meet again. May we meet again. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.